iPad failed me. Hi. So today we're going to talk about one of my most favorite books, The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. It was written in 1911, so I'm going to give you my spoiler alert. You've had over a hundred years to read it. <laughs> this story became important to me when I was about 11. I read the book and I loved it. I saw the 1993 movie when it came out. That means I'm old. Um, and there was even a Broadway musical around the same time, and the music from that, I still, yes, the music I still love. It's a beautiful story. I chose this way back in March. It was the farthest thing from Gardens and Flowers in Spring. I hadn't read it for at least 10 years, and I originally thought that this sermon, because I was yearning for springtime, I thought this sermon was going to be about how everybody needs to spend more time outside, away from screens, because it will be good for you, and also, nature is pretty. <laughs> I love being outside. I'd much rather be in the woods than anywhere else. I have a childhood's worth of memories that rooted my love for the outdoors, picking flowers and catching butterflies with my older sister. My parents used to take us to a state park in Virginia where many a summer we hiked through a marsh filled with cattails up to here to a beach on the James River where if your eyes were sharp enough, you could find shark's teeth. I never found any because I was like a toddler. I did get stung by a jellyfish once. Once dad took us to a spot at Harper's Ferry where two rivers come together. And I remember just being so quiet and taking in the beauty and rarity of that moment. Years later, I took junior naturalist classes at Double Rock Park. Don't let anybody tell you I'm not cool. And I learned, the name, I learned to name the plants along the trails. Now that I'm a mom and James is almost six, I've been trying to instill that same love for the outdoors. We peek under rocks and see if anyone is home, anyone mainly being worms. He can identify woody nightshade and skunk cabbage. We pick wine berries in the woods and we feast on that summer sweetness. I want to give him roots outside too, to plant seeds now that he'll remember later in life, even if he can't remember how he learned which one is a tulip poplar tree. Being with James, there are always questions. And I try to answer them honestly. When he asks, why did God make mosquitoes? My impulse is to say, I know, they're just the worst. But instead, I answer that they're good food for the bats. When he asks, why did God make flies? I say that flies, though so annoying, are there to eat dead stuff and help turn it back into the dirt. When he asks, but why did God have to make wasps and poison ivy? Sometimes my most honest answer is that I don't know, and you'll have to ask God about that. Sometimes God is mysterious, and we don't know everything about why he does things. There are harder questions, too. Why would somebody throw trash in the stream? Well, hopefully it was an accident, but maybe somebody's mom didn't teach them how to take care of outside. Why wasn't that guy wearing his bike helmet? Maybe his mom didn't teach him. It's important to protect your noggin. Why did God make bad guys? Hmm. Well, they weren't born bad guys. Somebody hurt them, and they turned into bad guys because they were so sad and scared and mad. God doesn't want there to be bad guys. That leads even grown-ups to ask, why bad guys? Why suffering? Why pain? Why brokenness? What are we supposed to do when confronted not just with the questions, but with reality, the evidence in our family, in our house church, in our lives? 
in the secret garden, we'll see God working on it, planting seeds, taking broken, suffering people, and making them new. So here's the plot. And there's a lot going on, and there's lots of characters. And if I had my druthers, I would just stand here and read this to you and do all the voices. But we don't have time. So in five acts. Ten-year-old Mary Lennox lives in British colonial India, so in the mid to late 1800s. Her father has a government job and is not around. Her beautiful mother neglects her, caring more for parties than for child-rearing. Mary is raised by her ayah, an Indian nanny. Her every whim is indulged. She's rude and selfish. She is intentionally kept out of the way. An epidemic of cholera wipes out the compound where they live, killing Mary's parents overnight, but Mary is so isolated that she survives, and she's shipped off to England to live with her uncle, Lord Archibald Craven, who is rumored to be a hunchback. At Misselthwaite Manor, think Downton Abbey, but a few decades earlier, Mary is instructed by the housekeeper, Mrs. Medlock, to keep to herself and not poke about the huge 600-year-old house that sits at the edge of a moor, which is miles and miles of wild land that nothing grows on but heather and gorse and broom, and nothing lives on but wild ponies and sheep. I won't do all the voices, I promise. This mysterious house is full of locked doors, gloomy paintings of ancestors, and strange noises that sound like crying. As the book starts, I don't want to be Mary or even be friends with her. Do you ever feel that in books? Like, oh, I love this person. I want to be best friends. I don't want to be friends with Mary. In just seven pages, she's described as spoiled, pettish, plain, fretful, disagreeable, sallow, unattractive, stiff, contrary, cross, and self-absorbed. She's compared several times to an old woman, which is kind of an insult to old women. She's thoroughly unchildlike. She begins to change, however, as the chapters progress. She meets Martha Sowerby, a young maid described as cheerful, good-natured, and sturdy. Rather than giving in to Mary's expectations for how a servant should treat her, Martha gives Mary a dose of reality, as in she's going to just have to learn to get dressed all by herself. She comes to be trusted, though, as someone who Mary can confide in and rely on. It is Martha who urges Mary to run outside and play in the winter gardens, since there's really nothing and no one for her inside. She also plants a seed in Mary. The first real spark of curiosity that Mary even shows, the story of the secret garden. You see, ten years ago, Uncle Archibald's sweet wife died suddenly. She had tended her special garden so lovingly, and he was so heartbroken that he couldn't bear to look at it. He locked it, buried the key, and forbade any servants to go in ever again. The ivy grew, hid the door, and it lay there undisturbed ever since. Martha, the housemaid, also loves to talk about her brother, Dickon. Out of the 12 children in her poor cottage-dwelling family, Dickon is the most adept at coaxing little green things to grow and charming the wild creatures. Mary likes him even before she meets him, based on how warmly his sister speaks of him. I don't much like Mary in this beginning, but we're let in on why she's like this and the thoughts that are running through her head about being lonely and wanting to belong to a place finally and she gradually becomes aware of more than just herself. She meets a gruff but kind-hearted gardener, Ben Weatherstaff. She hears stories of Martha's tight-knit family, and she receives a gift of a simple jump rope from Martha's mother, Susan Sowerby. And she gradually gets nicer. 
She's amazed when she encounters an English robin in the garden, and he seems to like her. As her chilly demeanor thaws, she discovers that she wants friends. She also wants a place of her own and loves the idea of privacy in a garden. I get this. By now, Mary gets me. Every time Martha and Dickens' mother, Susan, is mentioned, it makes me want to know slash be her. She nearly always sees a way to do things. She's sensible, hardworking, good-natured, kind-hearted, tidy. Everyone speaks of her with respect, and Mary likes her even before she's met her, too. She exists as a practical, grounded backdrop that we don't see often for agreeable Martha and Dickens. She's a great mom. She's obviously got great kids. The more time Mary spends outside in the winter gardens, waiting for winter to not be winter anymore, the more curious she becomes about things. Where the robin lives, especially, and can she find that garden that Martha told her about? Okay, here's a spoiler. She finds the key, long buried in the garden. She finds the garden door under the hanging ivy, and she finds a haven inside the secret garden. The gray and brown, forlorn garden that looks entirely dead. She's lived in India her life. She doesn't know what an English garden looks like. She doesn't know what wintertime looks like. Everything is dead and dry. A tiny spark of hope, though. She hopes that when spring arrives, it might come alive again. She notices little green spikes of daffodils and other spring flowers pushing out of the earth, and she gets great pleasure from clearing away dead leaves because they look like they can't breathe. There are many passages about Mary's personal progress. Four good things had happened to her since she came to Misselthwaite Manor. She had felt as if she had understood a robin and he had understood her. She had run in the wind until her blood had grown warm. She had been healthily hungry for the first time in her life, and she had found out what it was to be sorry for someone, Uncle Archibald. She becomes wider awake every day, and she loves the work in the shut-in garden. She's described as fascinated. She imagines. This didn't happen before. She's absorbed. She is not the same person who arrived weeks before. Mary finally meets Dickon when he arrives to deliver some seeds and garden tools that she's requested from a shop in town. Every time he's mentioned throughout the book, it's by an adult speaking of him with utmost respect and trust and fondness. I want to be friends with Dickon. Martha tells of how he rescues abandoned animals on the moor and makes friends with them. Dickon moves so he doesn't startle even the flightiest creature, and he is knowing and gentle with all. Mary likes him even more in person and entrusts him with her secret. Inside the garden, Dickon shows Mary that the roses growing everywhere that she had feared dead were as wick as you or me. Wick means alive on the inside and he shows her the green core inside all the rose branches. I want them all to be wick, Mary says. So, this is wick. Sounds kind of whippy. Don't mind that one. This is is what it does when you bend it. It's wick. If you look here, it's got green, juicy stuff. This is not wick. So leaving the garden, Mary asks Dickon, whatever happens, you would never tell. If thou was a missile thrush, that's a kind of bird, and showed me where thy nest was, did thou think I'd tell anyone? Not me, he said. 
Thou art as safe as a missile thrush. And she was quite sure she was. Uncle Archibald pauses from his near constant travel to finally check on Mary. The grief-stricken widower never stays long, trying to escape dark memories. Dickens' mother had seen him in town, and based on what Martha had told her of Mary, she recommended to Archibald fresh air and freedom to strengthen Mary before she was made to settle down with a proper English governess. When her unhappy uncle inquires if Mary would like anything, she asks, Might I have a bit of earth? to plant seeds in, to make things grow, to see them come alive. He is reminded of his dead wife, and he grants Mary to have her bit of earth from anywhere it's not wanted. And he spends the rest of the book wrapped in his own grief, traveling through Europe until the very last chapter. Now, this is about halfway through the book. Mary is happier, definitely pleasanter to be around, but what about the strangeness of the house? A rainy day finally keeps Mary inside after her blissful time in the garden with Dickon. And as she has on several other occasions, Mary hears a noise that sounds like a child crying. It's been explained away as the wind wuthering, or the um, kitchen maid with the toothache. But in the middle of the night, Mary ventures through the dark passages and follows the sound through the house. She felt as if she must find out what it was. It seemed even stranger than the secret garden and the buried key. She finds this room the sound comes from, opens the door, and there lies a boy. He looked like a boy who had been ill, but he was crying more as if he were tired and cross than as if he were in pain. Who are you? Are you a ghost? He whispered. No, answered Mary. Are you? I am Colin. This is Mary's cousin, Uncle Archibald's son, sickly from birth, reclusive in his own room for most of his ten years. If I live, I may be a hunchback, but I shan't live. My father hates to think I may be like him. My mother died when I was born, and it makes him wretched to look at me. Archibald only comes to look at Colin sleeping. Colin doesn't want to be stared at or talked about by anyone. He hates fresh air. He doesn't want to go out anywhere. In this strange midnight conversation, Mary finds out that there's not so much physically wrong with Colin, but everyone is obliged to do what pleases me. It makes me ill to be angry. No one believes I shall grow up. He said it as if he was so accustomed to the idea that that it had ceased to matter to him at all. Mary accidentally lets slip a mention of the secret garden, and like herself, Colin is intrigued. He asks lots of questions about where it is and why it's locked up, and Mary begins to feel afraid that her private sanctuary will be discovered and ruined. Colin insists that he would go out in the fresh air in that garden, and he'd order the key found and the door unlocked. I don't want to be friends with Colin, by the way. Mary, without giving away any more about it, manages to plead with Colin that if it stayed secret, it would be so much better, and maybe they could manage to go in alone sometime without a team of servants trampling through, spoiling the quiet beauty. Colin likes that even better. I should not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Mary describes it to him under the guise of imagining what it might be like inside the garden this time of year. He likes her description of the overgrown roses and the friendly robin. Colin is confident nothing bad will happen if Mrs. Medlock, the housekeeper, should find out that Mary's discovered the house's biggest secret. Colin is glad Mary found him. It turns out Martha waits on Colin and hasn't spoken of him because that's orders. She is to be their go-between for meetings so they can keep the secret of their new friendship just a bit longer. The next day when Martha hears of the meeting, she thinks she'll be fired 
and can't believe that Mary and Colin got on so well when spoiled Colin is always throwing temper tantrums. Next sunny day, that's just what happens. Mary chooses to go out to the garden with Dickon rather than visiting with Colin in his stuffy old room. Deprived of his own way, Colin screams himself into hysterics. The whole house is disturbed. Only when confronted equally forcefully by Mary, because she remembers how to throw a temper tantrum, Colin declares that he's scared that he's getting a lump on his back. Nobody else knows of this fear. He's filled with fear that he'll die, since he's heard it in whispers from doctors and servants his entire life. Mary pretty much pins him. She pokes him and prods him and declares that there's not a lump on his back, not even as big as a pin. For the first time, Colin can believe that he might not die, that he might live to grow up after all. After hearing so very much about Dickon and his pets from Mary, Dickon is finally invited to go to Colin's room. He brings his woodland pets, a crow, a fox, a newborn lamb, and squirrels. Colin is immediately charmed by him like everyone else and consents to be taken outside for fresh air with Dickon and Mary only. The gardener's got to go. Their privacy secure, the children go out every day and witness the spring coming. As they dig and water and tend the garden, Colin begins waking up too, letting go of the ailments he clung to as part of his birthright. And instead, he begins to feel that he wants to be healthy. He wants to learn to walk. He wants to live forever and ever and ever. Dickon is overwhelmingly generous with his time. The manor house is five miles from his family's cottage on the moor, not an insignificant daily walk for a 12-years-old. He comes every day. He cares for the garden. He brings extra food for Colin and Mary because the fresh air and exercise give them such an enormous appetite. Dickon is patient and helpful and kind. Okay, this is my most favorite part of the book. And when I read it in sixth grade, I didn't get it. And when I read it in high school, I didn't get it. And I love it. So the seeds that Dickon has been tending in Colin are finally showing their bloom. Colin has spent weeks practicing walking after barely even sitting up in his entire life. He's been exercising so that he's grown strong. He has a healthy appetite, and he's not the angry boy that we met just a few chapters before. He's taken to calling this unidentified healing force magic, capital M. He had known it before in a way. He had hoped it and felt it and thought about it, but just at that minute, something had rushed all through him, a sort of rapturous belief and realization, and it had been so strong that he could not help calling out, I shall live forever and ever and ever, he cried grandly. I shall find out thousands and thousands of things. I shall find out about people and creatures and everything that grows, like Dickon, and I shall never stop making magic, capital M. I'm well. I'm well. I feel... I feel as if I want to shout out something, something thankful, joyful. Ben Weatherstaff, grumpy gardener, he's there too. Ben Weatherstaff, who'd been working near a rosebush, glanced round at him. The mites sing the doxology, he suggested in his dryet grunt. <laughs> Colin was of an exploring mind, and he knew nothing about the doxology. What is that, he inquired. Dickon can sing it for thee, I'll warrant, replied Ben. Dickon answered with his all-perceiving animal charmer's smile. They sing it at church, he says. Mother says she believes the Skylark sings it when they get up in the morning. If she says that, it must be a nice song, Colin answered. I've never been in a church myself. I was always too ill. Sing it, Dickon. I want to hear it. Dickon was quite simple and unaffected about it. 
He understood what Colin felt better than Colin did himself. He understood by a sort of instinct so natural that he did not know it was understanding. He pulled off his cap and looked round, still smiling. Dickon stood out among the trees and rose bushes and began to sing in quite a simple, matter-of-fact way and in a nice, strong boy's voice. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Colin's face was thoughtful and appreciative. It is a very nice song, he said. I like it. Perhaps it means just what I mean when I want to shout that I am thankful to the magic. He stopped and thought in a puzzled way. Perhaps they are both the same thing. How can we know the exact names of everything? Sing it again, Dickon. Let us try, Mary. I want to sing it too. It's my song. How does it begin? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Dickon has known this whole time that what Mary and Colin were experiencing was the Holy Spirit, God waking them up. Dickon gets to witness it. He gets to help, and he has let them discover it little by little. The beauty of Dickon unashamedly declaring God. This is what I hope for as a mother. Dickon's been planting seeds this whole time, nurturing and tending his garden, and here's where it simply bursts into bloom. Next that we see that Dickon has let his mother join in the secret as well. And she comes through the ivy door at the end of the doxology. Mary and Colin, neither of them ever actually having a real mother, just adore her immediately. Susan Sowerby went round their garden with them and was told the whole story of it and shown every bush and tree which had come alive. Colin walked on one side of her and Mary on the other. Each of them kept looking up at her comfortable, rosy face, secretly curious about the delightful feeling she gave them a sort of warm, supported feeling. It seemed as if she understood them as Dickon understood his creatures. It was because she seemed such a wonderful woman in her nice moorland cottage way that at last she was told about the magic. Do you believe in magic? asked Colin. I hope you do. That I do, lad, she answered. I never noted it by that name, but what does the name matter? I warrant they call it a different name in France and a different one in Germany. The same thing as set the seeds swelling and the sun shining made thee a well lad. And it's the good thing. More capital letters there. It isn't like us poor fools as think it matters to us if we're called out of our names. The big good thing doesn't stop to worry, bless thee. It goes on making worlds by the million. Worlds like us. Never thee stop believing in the big good thing and knowing the world's full of it. And call it what thou likes. Thou wert singing to it when I come into the garden. I felt so joyful, said Colin. Suddenly, I felt how different I was, how strong my arms and legs were, and how I could dig and stand, and I jumped up and I wanted to shout out something to anything that would listen. The magic listened when the sung the doxology. It would have listened to anything that sung. It was the joy that mattered. Nay, lad, what's names to the joy maker? The big good, the joy maker. Susan doesn't scold Colin with proper church learning. She loves that Colin has found and identified in his own way his saving grace. This he understands, and there's plenty of time to help it grow. 
At the same time, Uncle Archibald was ending his faraway travels, inexplicably called back to Misselthwaite by a vision of his wife calling him to the garden. He's described as coming alive with the garden. Susan has already sent him a letter suggesting his presence at home, which doesn't say if Colin's better or worse. Lord Craven comes either way, hoping for the best, dreading the worst. Instead of bad news, he arrives to hear that children are in the garden? An entirely new thing. This hasn't happened for ten years. When Archibald approaches the long-closed door, who should come tumbling through while winning a foot race, thank you very much, but his own son, Colin. And here the book ends. So Mary and Colin, Wick or not Wick? Wick. They seemed lifeless. They seemed beyond hope. But they became filled with joy and life. What would have happened if Dickon hadn't seen them as Wick, but saw them as dry and brittle and dead to the core, incapable of growth and unworthy of attention. Here, Mary, take your seeds. Martha says you're kind of a brat, so I'm just going to be on my way. How about Colin? Dickon didn't decline to bring his menagerie of pets because it was widely rumored that Colin was going to die. The sooner the better, some said. He treated him like one of his own creatures from the moor, needing to be rescued and brought back to health. God sees us in our trials, and he doesn't leave our side. How are we supposed to recognize the big good without a dramatic backstory like Collins? How do we find the joy maker in the times that we feel anything but joyful? Mary found it when she began to focus on something outside of herself, when she recognized gifts and sacrifices from others. Then her heart began to soften. Rather than behaving like the sour old woman she was called at the beginning, she was transformed into a laughing young girl, childhood restored. When Colin surrendered his fear by saying it, maybe hollering it out loud, he gained hope. Rather than the helpless invalid, sure that death was just around the corner, he was ready to live forever and ever and ever. I only have to think as far as prayer request time or a prayer during house church to find the pain and challenges that folks here experience on a regular basis. But God doesn't leave us there. Certainly not alone. In Matthew 9, Jesus made a circuit of all the towns and villages. He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. So confused and aimless they were, like sheep with no shepherd. What a huge harvest, he said to his disciples. How few workers. On your knees and pray for harvest hands. Jesus called 12 of his followers and sent them to those ripe fields. He gave them power to kick out the evil spirits and to tenderly care for the bruised and hurt lives. Jesus uses his followers to help with healing and restoration. He's just one guy. He can't be everywhere all at the same time. It doesn't matter if you're in middle school or in retirement. You have the power of Christ within you. And the way you live your life has the power to change someone else's life. The light of Christ shining through you is a beacon. Or, keeping with our garden talk, our gardener God 
makes us gardeners too. In all our days, in the ways we live, we plant seeds of who he is and how he loves. In our relationships, we water, we nurture, and we tend. We have the power to see others as wick, others who feel broken and helpless, and we know that they can burst into bloom. So what can you actually do, though? Confronted with the brokenness of the world in which we live, my simplest and best answer is to love. Respond to an opportunity in the most loving way, or maybe the least jerky way possible. It is going to look different for each of us. My ways of loving someone are not necessarily the same as Kendall's or Caroline's. Probably Anna's way of loving somebody is different than Norm's. God has us where he needs us for the work that we are called to do. So how can you plant seeds of hope and nurture them? What would new hope look like if we all acted on the belief that God uses us? What would the church, more capital letters, Big C Church, look like if we all acted out our belief that God restores brokenness and heals pain when we share it? What would the world be like if we allowed the green tendrils of hope into situations that seem most hopeless? Beautiful. The world would be so much more beautiful. Pain wouldn't end and brokenness would still happen because sin is still a part of this world. But the kingdom of God is here and we are all gardeners for the God of green hope. Let's pray. In the message version of Romans 15, it says, May the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives, filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit, will brim over with hope. God, you are our restorer, life-giver, and we live in your power. We acknowledge you, and we praise you. Help us honor you, by living our lives like we have been restored. Amen.